Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Juan R. Alvarez. Uh, He's a research fellow, part of the Melton Laboratory at Harvard University. And uh, he's, well, I'll let him describe his research. It's a little bit complicated to explain, but uh, Juan, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah. If you would, uh, tell me about your research. What's the focus of it? Well, to put it in a nutshell, we're trying to cure diabetes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, how specifically are you tackling it? Are you focused on pancreatic beta cells, or what's your focus? Yes. So we believe that pan- uh, pancreatic beta cells are a crucial part of diabetes, and our approach is to substitute them in the way that when your car breaks, you repair the part that's broken or you replace it. And so we're developing islets, um, which is the part of the pancreas that contains the beta cells in the laboratory so that we can study but also replace the islets that go defective during diabetes. So what happens during diabetes when uh, people have looked at islets? Are they just gone? I mean, I heard in type 1 they just disappear and they don't even seem to leave any trace behind. But in type 2, like what happens? You know, have you looked at cadavers? and What have you seen? Exactly. Um, your point is right that there's different types of diabetes. And so... We have mainly perhaps three or four categories. The most common one is the last one you mentioned, type 2 diabetes, which is linked to obesity, in which there is an overwhelming demand for the hormone that the islets in your pancreas produce, which is insulin. And that overwhelming demand exhausts the cells to the point that they become dysfunctional and eventually die because of overworked, so and overworking conditions. And so in depending on the um, age of onset, we see different progression. It's um, multi-generational disease. There is genetic risks that influence how much your islets are able to withstand the overwhelming demand for insulin. And so there there is a range of endpoints for for the disease. And this is within the most common form of of diabetes. But of course, we also have diabetes that is due to uh, autoimmunity. And so type 1 diabetes is one example in which your immune system attacks the beta cells within the islets in your pancreas. And um, in that uh, presentation of the disease, um, pretty quickly you lose um, a lot of the mass, but not all of the mass because uh, beta cells are essential for life. And so if you lose them completely, you will die. And so there is a residual amount but there is that faults are able to go on with, but it is a devastating disease because it, it renders you needing lifelong uh, in, insulin injections. And right, well, that, that's for type 1, but what about type 2? Has that been studied very much? What happens to the beta cells? In, in, in the case of the beta cells, there's different types of type 2, so we would have to begin breaking down the problem if you see what I mean. And so there is type 2 that is linked to obesity, and so in type 2 that it is linked to obesity, one of the uh, characteristics of the beta cells is that, is that they cannot keep up with the demand for insulin secretion, but different individuals respond differently, and that's where the genetic risk uh, plays into account. And some, some individuals are able to respond very well, and they do not 
uh, undergo diabetes too, whereas other individuals have a different way of responding to the increased demand for insulin. And this different way renders their beta cells more vulnerable to dysfunction. And so many of them begin to de-differentiate, for example, and so they lose their mature phenotype. And this is one of the aspects that we're studying currently. How do they lose their mature function? In other words, it's not a terminal endpoint when you are a functional cell, but you can begin to uh, lose that ability to do your job properly. And so that is one endpoint. There is also type 2 diabetes that is not related to obesity, but is related to insulin resistance, and that is often caused by genetic mutations. And so in that case, your beta cells are fine. There's nothing wrong with them, but the tissues that are supposed to listen to the hormones that they make are not listening properly. And um, no matter how well your cells work, if the recipient is not listening, the insulin is not going to have the effect it is intended to. And so in those cases, um, therapies that address the the tissues that are not listening, for example, muscle and adipose tissues, um, are more effective than to try to address the function of the beta cells. And so in those cases, the beta cells are fine, but the insulin resistance is the problem. Well, in the case where it's obesity-linked and they de-differentiate, are they becoming like pluripotent? Or they like how, what's the degree of de-differentiation? Then what does that mean? They stop producing insulin, or they do they take on other functions? Yeah, that's a very good question. We are investigating what is what is happening, and, and to this point, it's not very clear. But we do know that there is no stem cells in your islets, and so there is no stem cells in your pancreas. And the idea is that in order to make more beta cells, the existing ones have to de-differentiate, become into progenitor-like state, then divide, and then uh, re-differentiate into beta cells in order to make more. However, the extent to which this happens in humans is very limited. In other animals, they're able to de-differentiate, replicate, and re-differentiate, whereas in humans, the expected beta cell mass uh, expansion from replication of existing pre-existing beta cells is very low. And so we are starting to discover that perhaps rather than an effort to replicate, the, the loss of differentiation is rather related to a protection mechanism in which if you uh, stop producing the, the hormone insulin, then you are not uh, having a traffic jam in, in your endoplasmic reticulum with all the protein that needs to be secreted, and you're able to survive better. And so by losing their main function, which is the production of insulin, they are protecting themselves from death, preventing uh, being jammed in their uh, endoplasmic reticulum with, with protein. How do you know that they're de-differentiated? How can you tell? Do you look at them histologically on slides and see that they look different? You know, they have I don't know, their mitochondria change or their endoplasmic reticulum is different? Or like, how do you know? That's a very good question. How do you know that they are differentiated? Well, one of the main things is that in, we only have access to the tissues after uh, post-mortem. And so after the patient has deceased, we can look at the slides and we can look at lower levels of insulin staining. So we stain for the protein insulin, and there is a lower amount of cells that express lower amount of protein. Another issue is the use of markers. And so we can use markers to tell us the state of differentiation. A differentiated beta cell, for example, expresses proteins that are associated with their mature function. And when they differentiate, de-differentiate, then these proteins stop being expressed. And so we have found markers in, in rodents and markers in humans. And when we stain for them in the sections of, uh, of cadavers, then we can see lower expression which is indicative that the cells have decreased their function. When we get the cells alive, we're also able to test directly whether they are able to respond to glucose. 
And by having impaired responses, we also relate to that as a loss of their uh, phenotype. And so molecularly, they are still beta cells, but they are less mature. In other words, they have lost their, the capacity for doing a specialized job, if you will. They have forgotten it. And sorry, insulin is a, uh, is a foldable substance like a protein, or it is a protein. Yes. Do you look to see if there's um, you know, the presence of more misfolded insulin? Would you be able to tell that in these cells or other things that are different about them? Yes, there is evidence for what we call proteotoxicity. And so when a lot of protein is being produced at a higher demand, because of a higher demand at a higher rate, um, this causes misfolding of the proteins and we are able to sequence the, um, the, the peptides that are present in, in beta cells from type 2 diabetics. We can see a lot more aberrant peptides. And so we call them diabetogenic peptides or aberrant peptides. There's many names for them. But basically, those are evidence that the translation of the peptide is, is not happening properly. There's also evidence for misfolding because the misfolding elicits a response by the cell. And that response uh, to misfolded proteins has several markers that we can stain for as well. And we have identified some of the pathways that are acting. What we do not know is whether they are a cause or a consequence of the dysfunction of the cells. But we do know that uh, protein misfolding uh, is involved. What appears to be the function of the different dedifferentiated cells? Are they, do they take on like other exocrine functions of the pancreas, or I mean, like what do they do? Do they just seem to be just cells that have no function, or what's observed? Yes, um, that's that's a mystery, and in fact, um, I do not believe that they undertake other jobs. I think that they are mostly defined by the lack of the job that they're supposed to perform. It's not like they become alpha or exocrine cells. There's plenty of exocrine cells. 95% of your pancreas is exocrine cells. And so it is that vital 5% of which about half is beta cells that sustains your glucose homeostasis for your life. And so I think that it's a mystery fundamentally, but part of what is going on is that the beta cells protect themselves from complete death by, by not showing up to work. But we do know in cases in which, uh, for example, one of the therapies that has proven a cure for type 2 diabetes has been gastric bypass surgery, for example. And we do know that within a very short time, it is possible to recover the function. And so it is not lost forever. Some of those cells have done it perhaps as a protection mechanism, but it is possible for them to regain their mature phenotype and go back to work under circumstances in which there is a decrease in, in the demand that puts them in this place. Have you looked at the local microbiome around these cells? And the reason why I ask is that I interviewed a lady named Florencia McAllister. She mm -hmm. studies uh, cancer in the pancreas, and she said that they found in the lab that the pancreatic tumors had a different localized microbiome from the rest of the pancreas. So perhaps that's another thing to look at to see if that has an influence. So pancreatic tumors are very interesting. Part of it is because we do not know what causes them, but it's one of the most aggressive cancers. And um, you have heard about some famous people who have died of pancreatic cancer, including uh, what Steve Jobs, for example. We do know that it doesn't, in the most presentations, originate in the beta cells of the pancreas or in the islets. It originates in the surrounding cells, and so the ductal cells. So it is a ductal adenocarcinoma, which means it's an epithelial cancer. But part of the response to the overall disrupted ecosystem is that uh, your gut flora might be different. And so the digestive system has a response to the cancer. Um, we do not know if it can be a cause or a consequence, 
but it is not something that I focus on. So I think that is a very interesting question, but it's not something that we know too much about. Well, when you see the two types of behavior you described, one is that the you know you have de-differentiation of the beta cells, and the other one we haven't discussed yet, but you said the the tissues that are supposed to receive the insulin signaling aren't listening. Are any of these uh, phenotypes correlated with with pancreatic cancer or other cancers? Has that been observed? So there is a one-way but not a two-way correlation, I would say. So there are cases in which cancer results in diabetes, and it's it's complicated. In many, so there's many different types of cancers, some of which end up having an effect in glycemic control. Um, but in in many of the cases, what ends up happening is, is is an indirect effect, and that indirect effect is that due to the therapy that cancer patients receive, there is an unmasking of autoimmunity against their pancreas. So that means that there was a latent propensity to the disease, but the disease hadn't developed, and open chemotherapy or radiotherapy that propensity is unmasked, and then they end up with type 1 diabetes. There is other forms of cancer or other forms of injury, for example, like pancreatitis, that can directly impair the function of islets. And in those cases, then you also end up with diabetes. Those are not the uh, large majority of diabetics. They are rare cases, but they exist. And so there are contexts in which one can cause the other. However, diabetes causing cancer is not something that we know too much about, and we don't have causative links there. We do know that there is a range of other diseases. So the most common diseases associated with type 2 diabetes are diseases due to hyperglycemia. And so hyperglycemia can cause problems with your nervous system. So death of nerves, sometimes that leads in extreme cases, for example, retinopathy, which causes blindness. Uh, It can also cause uh, problems with peripheral with peripheral organs and with your limbs, and sometimes that leads to amputation. And there is also the, the problems with the kidney. And so kidney failure is one of the most common. So it's a multi-organ disease, but cancer isn't necessarily one of the things that we observe as often as others with diabetes. Okay, and, and again, the, the second phenotype that you described is the, uh, you know, the tissues stop being able to, I guess, they're, like you said, they're not listening. What, what does that mean? What happens... Um, in that phenotype where the person is not obese, but they appear to have diabetes and what's happening to their tissues and which tissues appear to be affected in which way more. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Right. That is a fascinating question because it's a different way to get to the same phenotype, which is diabetes. In many cases, diabetes, or actually historically, it used to be thought as a disease of insulin resistance. And so The job of insulin is to encourage other tissues to uptake glucose from the blood so that they can do their functions based on glucose as a fuel. So two of the the tissues that, um, because of their mass, absorb quite a lot of the glucose from your blood is um, adipose tissue and muscles. And so they have receptors for the insulin uh, protein, which are called the insulin receptors. And in some cases, folks can develop deficiencies in how the receptor is working or how the downstream signaling from the receptor is working. And so uh, there are different mutations. They can be genetic mutations that are inherited or spontaneous ones. And also they can be uh, problems associated with other metabolic syndromes that affect the processing of the insulin signaling. And so in those cases, what ends up happening is that even though there is quite, quite enough insulin, 
um, it, it's not having its intended effects. So the glucose aren't, sorry, the, the tissues aren't importing glucose. And what they end up doing is that to compensate for that, they end up uh, relying on other fuels. And so other fuels besides glucose uh, include, uh, for example, turning amino acids, not as building products, but as uh, uh, fuels to burn. Or also the liver has a compensatory effect in which it produces ketones and the ketones can be used for immediate production by mitochondria or energy. And so the problem arises when these compensatory mechanisms are fighting with insulin. So the beta cells think that if they produce more insulin, then it's going to have its intended effects. And the liver thinks that there is no insulin because the other tissues are not responding. And so the production of both insulin and ketones leads to a lethal condition called ketoacidosis. And ketoacidosis can, um, can cause coma and eventual death. And that is one of the problems in which insulin resistance can be gained. Well, what's the biochemical mechanism by which a tissue is presented with insulin and uses it to modulate how it's processing glucose? Like, can you go over that just in, in general? Oh, yes. So insulin is a circulated peptide. It's a circulating peptide. And so um, it is synthesized as the larger protein. It is cut in two places and it is processed into mature insulin. So during processing, we talk about uh, pre-pro-insulin, pro-insulin, and then mature insulin. The mature product is secreted from the beta cells into the bloodstream. And so it floats in the bloodstream, and it, it is a circulating factor that is present at high enough levels that it binds to receptors in peripheral tissues. And so that is how it reaches the receptors. Now, downstream of binding the receptors, there is a whole uh, downstream signaling cascade that has to do with protein kinases. And protein kinases transduce a message and have a network of um, basically all the proteins that relay the signal all the way to the nucleus in which they can increase the transcription of genes that then encourage uptake of glucose from the outside to the inside. And then the glucose, glucose transporters flows through glycolysis and then through the Krebs cycle in the mitochondria in order to produce energy. Does that more or less answer your question? Yeah, well, what happens if there's no insulin present? What would happen to the glucose outside the cell? Would it just not be uptaken or would it just be uptaken and processed to the point where the cell, like, you know, I don't know, it gets overloaded? Like, what would happen? Yes. And so what happens is precisely what renders diabetics a health danger, which is hyperglycemia, right? Without insulin, the tissues that are supposed to uptake glucose are only taking it at background levels. And so the levels of glucose are much higher than in, in you and me and in normal patients. And so when the glucose levels are very high, then you can begin a condition that is called glucotoxicity, in which the, the glucose is very high in the, in, in, the, in the blood, but the tissues are not taking advantage of it. And so it creates an environment in which the tissues are not reaching the fuels that they need, and that results to a lot of problems. And so it is possible to uptake uh, background basal levels of glucose without insulin, but insulin gives you a hundredfold decrease in the uptake of glucose. And so without any insulin, you cannot survive. And so uh, that is why people who have very limited beta cell mass have to uh, undergo daily injections of insulin. So type 1 diabetics, which have very little beta cell mass, or very advanced type 2 diabetics, which are also left with very little beta cell mass, have to recur to daily injections with each meal of, of the insulin itself. And so it's a crucial peptide without which you can't live. So essentially the presence of insulin bound to a cell membrane tells the cell, all right, take in more glucose and process it. So it's, uh, it upregulates the, uh, 
the transport and the usage of glucose by a cell. Exactly. Right? And there is more glucose coming in because of meals. And so the cell is, is doesn't know if you've had a, a meal or not. What it tells it is the insulin because the insulin tells it, hey, there's more glucose coming in because the body just ingested a meal. And so do your, do your part and, you know, uh, get some of it out of the blood and into your uh, cell in order to process it for energy. So what happens if uh, you have a tremendous amount of insulin in your blood? I guess it'll bind to all the, avail- the, all the available sites on a cell, but at some point, the transport of the glucose into the cell is limited by, you know, transport mechanisms. So what is, is it insulin resistance or is it just an abundance of insulin to the point where the cells are just at capacity? They can't take any more glucose in or process it any faster. Right. And so you are talking about the opposite, which is not a deficiency of insulin, but an overabundance of insulin. So that condition is called hyperinsulinemia and it's also dangerous. There is two types of response, an acute response and an um, a chronic response. And so in the acute response to hyperinsulinemia, um, you have a lot of insulin and the, the cells can't um, operate with so much signaling. And so what they do is that they, they turn, turn down the level, if you will. They do compensatory uh, molecular mechanisms that stop listening to the signaling of, of, of insulin. But chronically, this can lead to s- severe problems. And so that is why the insulin has to be active at the right time in the right place, but it has to diminish after that. Otherwise, you have a condition that uh, encourages the tissues to have disrupted signaling and, and use of fuels. The tissues need periods of rest, if you will. And so all of the cells in our bodies have to segregate their um, biochemical processes in time in order to, for example, replicate a lot of the fuel utilization is segregated in time from replication. So DNA replication happens when the mitochondria are not too active because the mitochondria themselves, by producing fuel, produce reactive oxygen species, and those can be um, damaging to DNA replication. And so if you have a constant activity of the mitochondria because of a hyperpresence of insulin, then this can lead to overproduction of reactive oxygen species, which can be lethal to the cell when the cell is replicating, for example. But very specifically, the theory seems to be insulin resistance. But what is actually happening when you have you know, hyperinsulinemia? What's happening at the cellular level? Is it, again, that the cell just only has a certain capacity to process and uptake glucose and no matter how much um, the insulin tells it to take up more, it just can't do it. Like, what's the rate limiting thing that's happening that appears to be called? I would draw a distinction. Hyperinsulinemia is not necessarily the same as insulin resistance, right? And so insulin resistance is a condition because in which they are not processing insulin signaling. Whether the levels of the insulin are low or high, it doesn't matter. This, the, the, the signaling downstream is what is affected. Whereas hyperinsulinemia is a, a part of the evolution of insulin resistance, if you will. It's when the beta cells are trying to compensate by the fact that the glucose level in the blood has not decreased as intended by over, overproducing insulin. But eventually, the uh, hyperinsulinemia stops because the beta cells be- begin to have problems themselves and there's feedback mechanisms. And so the insulin resistance can continue without hyperinsulinemia. So there is just a difference, a separation of the two processes in time. Now, you were referring to whether there is a, what is the rate limiting uh, step. And so I think that there are still research to be done as to what are the kinetics long-term in the effect of overpresence of insulin. And so I wouldn't know necessarily what the rate limiting step is. For example, there's other 
signals from the gut and signals from the liver that will counteract the presence of insulin. And those ones might be the rate-limiting steps, for example, the production of enzymes that directly degrade insulin, such as uh, DPP-4. They can be produced in order to get rid of all that excess insulin, and they might establish um, uh, a, a, a slower uh, limiting step. So it, it's not just the insulin itself. There's a host of other hormones that are produced in response to it, and they determine how fast the absorption of the glucose is. And so I think the, the limiting step might be in the production of the hormones, for example. Yeah, but on the road to diabetes, I would expect that the person's body would experience, you know, transient periods of very high glucose and then periods of very high insulin to respond to the glucose and then very low glucose and high insulin and then another shift with the next meal now to high glucose, low insulin and the insulin catching up. So there's a cycling, I would think. So the cells would see the presence of this cycling and it probably would be amplified more and more over time you know, on the road to persistent diabetes. So at the point where you say someone has insulin resistance, you know, again, that's why I'm asking what you think, you know, there was a road to get there. It's not like, boom, it happened today and it didn't happen yesterday. So if you look at it from that standpoint, like, do you have any different thoughts about it or additional ones? Yes. So I think that the rhythms are very important and you're getting at something that is quite important, which is the expectation of meals versus fasting, right? And so in a normal person, in a non-diabetic, there will be uh, periods of eating and periods of fasting in which your, your glucose levels are going up with the meal and down after it. And so the insulin normally tracks the increases and decreases of glucose. And so diabetes itself doesn't involve a change in those patterns. Uh, metabolic syndrome, which is a disruption of the normal cycles of eating and fasting, can also lead to diabetes. But in the type 2 diabetes, um, what's affected is not necessarily the cycles. However, there is a research out there that suggests that one way to deal with it is to restrict the feeding times so that those rhythms can be reestablished. And so people are calling this, for example, uh, maybe chronomedicine, right? And so the idea that if you reintroduce periods uh, in which there is no glucose, there is no high glucose in the blood because the individual is fasting, then you will slowly reset the clocks so that now the body can better respond to increases in glucose. And so this type of therapy is very experimental, but one of the names that it has been giving, and this is one of the areas that I'm focusing on in my own research, uh, is called time-restricted feeding. And so it is a notion that it is not so much the overwhelming demand for, for insulin that uh, eventually leads to type 2 diabetes, but rather that the um, period of time during the demand exists uh, is prolonged versus normal individuals. And so not something about the amount of insulin that is required, but the duration of the time during which it's being demanded. And so there's been plenty of research in genetic models and rodents in which if you subject them to a, a, a diet that has the same amount of calories as a diet that induces type 2 diabetes, but you restrict the consumption of that diet to certain uh, times during the day, um, for example, eight hours during the day rather than uh, 12 or 16 hours during the day, then, then obesity and obesity-linked diabetes is mitigated. And so because of those encouraging results, as, uh, people have now gone into studies with humans in which they ask people, can you restrict meals to um, eight to 10 hours during the day? And so that is actually very easy because if you think about it, uh, if we sleep eight hours, those are eight hours we're not eating. And so the challenge is for the remaining 16 hours 
to only uh, consume uh, meals during half of it. And so usually those, what those individuals are asked is to not eat immediately after waking up, um, but rather to uh, wait for two hours after waking up and uh, to have the last meal two hours before going to bed. And then you have a full period of at least 12 hours in which there has been no food consumption. And this seems to actually lead to um, decreased weight and improved insulin sensitivity, which means decreased insulin resistance. Uh, the gains are small. The studies have only been conducted for about two to three months and individuals have um, shown a, a statistical significant improvement, but which is small relative to the overall syndrome. But it's, I think it's a promising avenue. And so time-restricted feeding to restore those rhythms that you were referring to, I think can be promising avenue to address type 2 diabetes, which um, may, be, may warrant further research in the future. In terms of your research, what are some of the endpoints you're looking to figure out right now? What do, you, what do you think within the next year, maybe two years, that you're getting close to figuring out? So one of the things that we're getting close to figuring out is a role not during diabetes precisely, but during the acquisition of the mature phenotype. And so one of the things we've been investigating is whether the beta cells in your eyelids can achieve their mature phenotype without having these rhythms. Because um, we, we encountered a very interesting problem as we were trying to make the cells in the lab, we were able to make cells that respond to glucose by secreting insulin. Those are glucose-responsive beta cells. However, they didn't do so in the same way as the cells within your body do it. And it's been a big mystery why there is this gap in function. And so in order to address it, we did uh, a plenty of molecular studies that had to do with epigenomic changes and transcriptomic changes and one of the clues that emerged out of that is that the cells were not having rhythms. In other words, that they were not experiencing uh, oscillations in their metabolism in the way that the cells within our body do. And so then we realized something that, it, that in retrospect is quite simple and intuitive. When we are culturing the cells that we make in the laboratory, we are giving them constant feeding. And so we're giving them media that has high glucose um, all of the time. Whereas if we um, begin to fluctuate the media that we culture the cells in, in order to have lower levels of glucose and then higher and then lower in a periodic fashion, then the clocks of the cells become activated. We can measure them by the expression of their genes. And the cells begin to have a higher stimulatory capacity for insulin secretion, which means they can secrete more insulin in response to stimulatory levels of, um, uh, of, of glucose or of other stimulants. And so within the next year or two, my, um, my role is going to try to find what the mechanism uh, of, this, of this phenomenon is. So we have an observation, but we don't have a mechanistic basis for it. How do the clocks lead to more mature function? And as we alluded at the beginning of our conversation, maturity and mature function is important because if we understand how they are gained during development, we may have new avenues to understand how they are lost during disease, during diabetes. And so uh, one of the hopes is that within the next few years, we'll figure out what are the mechanisms by which the rhythms in meals, if you will, so feeding, fasting, time-restricting feeding, uh, it's, it's all related to having periods of meals and periods of fasting. How do they get to the nucleus? What, is the, what are the messengers? What are the effectors that translate, that sense the nutrients and translate it to the proteins in the nucleus in order to have a change in the physiology of the beta cell. If we understand how that happens normally during development, 
then we might understand what becomes dysfunctional when the maturity is lost, when the cells become uh, uh, less mature or de-differentiated, if you will. And if we know the mechanisms, we might be able to know what targets to go after. Maybe we, the, there is a, a protein that we need to reactivate in order to um, uh, re-differentiate those cells that have lost their function in diabetes or uh, an, a molecule that we can inhibit um, and so that the mature function is not lost anymore. Well, very good. Juan, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research in the key tabs? Well, uh, we have, um, glad you asked, recently we published uh, our, our research in the, um, it's called uh, Circadian Entrainment Triggers Maturity, Triggers uh, Maturity of In Vitro Islets. Uh, it's published in Cell Stem Cell uh, in December of 2019, and it appeared in print in January uh, of this year. At the same time, um, we have uh, put um, poster report that uh, is part of STEM journal that came out a couple of months ago. And that summarizes our thinking of how this could be a general method, not just for islets, not just for beta cells, but for uh, any tissue to acquire its mature phenotype. And so those are two publications in which people can catch up. Uh, there is, um, th this has been shared in social media as well. And um, my work has also been available through conferences. And so there have been conferences um, that have made these lectures available in which I present my research. Uh, one of them is the Society for Biological Rhythms. And another one is um, the um, Harvard Stem Cell Institute retreat. And the posters from that retreat are now online, also available through STEM Journal. Well, very good. Juan, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. And I've enjoyed uh, your questions. Well, good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.